Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Arnie Gunderson to the show today. He has been doing tons of video communication, explaining what is going on in the Fukushima plants, what the conditions are that are happening around the world, explaining about radiation. He is known as being a whistleblower in the nuclear industry. He is a former senior vice president for a nuclear company. He has been an expert witness for the Three Mile Island incident and another one called St. Lucie, which he will tell you about. He's been 35 years in the nuclear industry. He was also a licensed reactor operator. He has much to teach us and to explain to us what he's been doing since the reactors exploded in Japan. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Arnie Gunderson to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, we really appreciate it. You've been all over the news. You've been with Deepak Chopra. You've been on different stations. But your videos are very helpful. I first want to talk to you about who you are. You appear to have sprung up out of nowhere, but I guess the nuclear industry knows about you. Talk to us about your background and where is this knowledge coming from that you know what you know? Yeah, I've been, um, uh, I'm 62, so I've been around a while. Not quite older than dirt, but getting there. And <laughs> I, uh, um, I started, um, I went to college at Rensselaer and I got a bachelor's and a master's there. First in my class and stuff like that, Atomic Energy Commission scholar. And I, uh, um, I got a reactor operator's license and, um, and then went into industry and I worked, um, my first reactor I, I ever worked on was, um, Millstone One, which is identical to Fukushima One. And, uh, then I, my, um, I met Maggie, my wife, on a, when I was the lead nuclear engineer on a, uh, on a project in upstate New York. Um, and then we moved and raised our family in Connecticut, um, where I was a senior vice president of a, of a nuclear company over in Connecticut. So uh, in that capacity, I, uh, I built nuclear fuel racks. From the division I ran built nuclear fuel racks for a, uh, um, a BWR exactly like Fukushima. And um, um, I've been in about 70 reactors around the country. So in 1990, I um, blew the whistle on the, the company I worked for. I didn't really plan on blowing the whistle. I found some violations and told the president about it, president of the company, and, uh, and he fired me. And then I went to the NRC, and I told them about the violations, and they came in and did an inspection and uh, couldn't find anything. And um, so then I knew I was right, and I went to uh, Senator John Glenn, and my my local congressperson, and uh, got them to get the inspector general involved. And the inspector general found everything that I had said was true. There was all the violations were there, and that the NRC had knowingly botched the inspection, and uh, also that the NRC inspectors, nuclear regulatory commission inspectors, were uh, taking illegal gratuities from the company I worked for. So. Um, we were sued, my wife Maggie and I were sued for a million and a half dollars because uh, they claimed that we were defaming their character, and uh, that drove us into bankruptcy and foreclosure. And ultimately, we reached an out-of-court settlement in uh, 
1996. Now, when you say you reached an out-of-court settlement, you mean they had to pay you or you had to pay them? Ah, yes. They paid us some, but it didn't match our losses. And They basically said, um, we will continue to fight for another five years or you will settle. And so at that point, after six years in the house in foreclosure and all that, we settled. So I moved on with my life, and uh, during during the 90s, I was an expert witness uh, on Three Mile Island on a, a case in Texas where uh, some oil workers were exposed to neutron uh, radiation. And uh, throughout the 2000s, I was uh, an expert witness on several trials, including one at St. Lucie where uh, there's a cancer cluster of 39 um, kids that have uh, cancer. Um, and then in 1907, uh, I'm sorry, in 2007, Maggie had started the company Fairwinds, and uh, um, and I was um, I went on full time in 2007, and I got appointed to the oversight committee here in Vermont on Vermont Yankee, and I discovered that the decommissioning fund was short. I predicted ahead of time the cooling towers were going to collapse, and they did. And then I discovered the fact that there really were underground pipes that the executives had been lying about. And then um, um, just in 2010, we had the underground pipes begin to leak here in Vermont. And that resulted in uh, um, Vermont Yankee being rejected by the state of Vermont for a 20-year license extension. So that's uh, pretty much it in a nutshell. Uh, you know, um, I, for the first 20 years of my life, I, I believed that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was a tough cop. And for the second 20 years of my professional career, I know that they're not a tough cop. And uh, uh, while from a media standpoint, I probably have just risen to, uh, to radar. But uh, in fact, the NRC has known about me for 20 years, and I've been consistently pushing them to do the job we're hiring them to do. I feel for you when I hear you speak about what you've been through. In all of your videos, you seem to have a calm poise, a clarity that you transmit in explaining to us what's going on. There was a time when I guess I wasn't as calm or as poised. <laughs> I'm uh, sure. There, there was a time in the early 90s when uh, when I was angry and... Uh, um, and um, Angry at the industry, angry at the Nuclear um, Regulatory Commission. And, uh, you know, when life gives you lemons, you turn them into lemonade. And, and, uh, and now I've, I've just, I feel very comfortable and at ease um, um, talking about the, the unregulated side or the underregulated side of nuclear power and the risk it, it, uh, it, it applies to every citizen in the country. Because we are in the United States having this conversation, do you happen to know offhand how many nuclear reactors there are in the U.S. right now? Uh, power reactors, there's 104. 23 of them are essentially identical to Fukushima. So really, everybody needs to be listening very carefully. Anyway, that's still a lot of nuclear reactors. But before we go into a lot of what you've talked about in the video, even your current video yesterday, April 18th, I want to talk to you about Indian Point and Vermont, and I want you to explain what's happening there and what's in process. Well, there, there are two separate uh, reactors and two separate designs. 
both of them are owned by a company called Entergy, which is a, a large nuclear holding company. They own 11 nuclear reactors. Um, let's start with Vermont Yankee, which is here in Vermont. It was built in 1972, and its license expires in 2012, 40 years later. And the um, Nuclear Regulatory Commission has um, just, just a week after Fukushima, granted a 20-year license extension, despite the fact that it's the identical reactor to Fukushima. So here in Vermont, though, when, when Entergy bought Vermont Yankee, in 2000 and, uh, um, 2002, they, had, they signed an agreement where they would abide by the state law and essentially ask the state for permission to continue to operate. And last year, in 2010, the state declined to give them permission. So here in Vermont, we, the state says you cannot run, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission says you can run. And of course, uh, just yesterday, the nuclear regulatory—I mean, sorry, Entergy—sued um, the state of Vermont, saying that we had no authority to uh, to shut them down. So that's Vermont Yankee. We're we're uh, close to closing a power plant, um, and it will be tied up in litigation now, and we'll see where it turns out. Indian Point's a little different. Indian Point's a different reactor. Um, two reactors, actually, Indian Point two and three. And uh, they're on the Hudson River in New York State. And they have um, um, uh, different problems. Their problem is that they consume an enormous amount of river water. They consume 2 billion gallons a day of river water. And what that means is it goes in one end cold and comes out the other end hot. And in the process, it kills a lot of fish eggs and fish larvae. That's more than 10% of the river flow, uh, the fish the fish eggs in the river get killed by, by running through this power plant. So that's a concern, and that had been a concern for, for several years and, and was, um, was in, uh, in court in, in New York State. Basically, the uh, Riverkeeper, uh, one of the organizations in New York State, asked to have the, the cooling towers put in, which is um, a separate cooling system rather than using the river. And... Um, uh, that was progressing until Fukushima, uh, pretty much on a, on, a, on a single course. But Fukushima shows us that you need a bigger emergency planning zone than 10 miles, and, and Indian Point has a 10-mile uh, plan, emergency planning zone. New York City is 26 miles from New York. Of course, if you're following Fukushima, there was a 50-mile um, evacuation ordered by the United States State Department. So the question is, hey, if it's good enough for Japan, why isn't it good enough for New York State? And so now the issue at Indian Point is not just killing the fish in the river, but um, planning to evacuate New York City as well as uh, anybody within 10 miles of the plant. Doesn't it drive you crazy to think of only 10 miles when we're talking about nuclear energy and fission products, the 10 miles? It's crazy. It was crazy. 40 years ago when they built the plant. Um, everybody knew in the industry that Indian Point was an outlier, that, that there was no, um, no logical reason why Indian Point should be there except that it was. And um, you know, basically there's been arguments uh, 
for 40 years that emergency planning at Indian Point would be would result in a in a disaster if ever an accident were to occur. You're absolutely right. It's obvious. In one of the segments that you did that I watched, you said that when these reactors were planned 40 years ago, they were visioning the worst imaginable scenario of 1% fuel failure with a containment that leaked one-tenth percent per day. Am I correct? Yes, that's correct. One month before Fukushima, that was the worst that anybody would would, uh, analyze for. Here's my question to you. If right now we're at 70% fuel and containment with a hole in the side of the reactor at Fukushima, isn't there a core disconnect in a almost sociopathic relationship to even imagining worst case scenarios to be that far off? What is it, a thousand percent off? It's a thousand percent off. You're absolutely right. You know, the NRC has said that uh, American reactors are safe, but they're going to take 90 days to, um, to look at the, the considerations. And um, I hope things like containment integrity are one of the things they're going to look at, but I'm not confident they will. The, um, we just heard on Friday from uh, Representative Markey in Massachusetts that the NRC is limiting the time that their inspectors spend to 40 hours on each reactor, and they're not allowed to look outside the box. In other words, they're not allowed to say, wow, that assumption is really too low. We need a tougher assumption. Um, so the NRC is constraining their inspectors so that they won't, um, they won't find anything. I want to talk to you about plutonium. A few weeks ago, I did a short interview with Dr. Helen Keldegott. And plutonium seems to be a huge deal. I know people are worried about the radioactive iodine and cesium-137, and we can talk about all that. But I really want you to talk to us about plutonium and how come it is that, what was it, 10,500 tons of radioactive water were poured back into the ocean at Fukushima a few weeks ago? I was horrified hearing this. How is that possible to do that? Well, what happened at Fukushima, let's talk about the water first and then the plutonium. Is that okay? Sure. Okay. What happened at Fukushima with the water was that they ran out of tanks. And the radioactive water that was really, really, really radioactive had to go somewhere. So they emptied tanks that were only really, really radioactive to put the really, 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 really radioactive stuff into it. And so... um <laughs> They, they had to do it. There, there was no place to put the water. So they emptied tanks that contained 10,000 times the maximum permissible concentration because the other stuff was a million times the maximum concentration. But there, it's not over. They're going to fill those tanks as well because the units are still leaking water. And um, they may have to do it again, which would, uh, uh, which would be much, much more radioactive than the highly radioactive stuff they already put in. Now, that contains things like uh, cesium-137, and that gets absorbed in brown algae and gets eaten by um, little fish that get eaten by bigger fish and uh, can work its way up. Cesium is a muscle uh, that attaches to your muscles. So, of course, when you eat fish, you eat the meat, the muscle, uh, and you can pick up cesium from the fish. They've already found cesium. In the, uh, in the fish about 40 miles away from the plant. 
so it clearly is um, is spreading, and uh, I would expect it would spread even more. Now, your plutonium question is is, um, is 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 really a great question. When when the nuclear reactors um, began their meltdown, most but not all of what they release is things like cesium and iodine and strontium ninety and um, all of which are radioactive and all of which are carcinogenic. Plutonium is a bigger molecule and is a little heavier, so uh, not too, too much of it goes airborne unless the fuel melts down and there's a fuel fire. Well, that's what happened in Unit 4. Unit 4 is the, is the one reactor that wasn't running, but all of the fuel was in the fuel pool. And the fuel pool got very hot, boiled dry, and caught on fire twice. Um, they found nuclear fuel rods, parts of nuclear fuel rods, as far away as two miles from uh, Unit 4. Um, could have also come from Unit 3. But those rods contain plutonium. Now they're finding small particles of plutonium um, on, the, on the ground around the plant, which means that the plutonium was um, what they call volatilized, turned into a, um, essentially light air, like a piece of dust. Now, Brookhaven, Brookhaven National Labs, did a study, and if there was a fuel pool fire and the fuel, pool, and the fuel burned, it could result in about 120,000 fatalities from the plutonium because it goes airborne and causes lung cancer. And um, so the, the worst case of Fukushima is not the three reactors that are melting down, but Unit 4, which has all of its fuel in the fuel pool and the building has the roof blown off it. In one of your videos, you talked about one gram, a dollar bill, into a million pieces, and a microgram can cause a lethal cancer. Can you explain that? Yeah, that's a, 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 um, there's a plutonium atom has a, um, a really powerful alpha ray. And an alpha ray doesn't penetrate your skin if it's outside your skin. But if you breathe it in and it lays up against your lung tissue, uh, at that point there's nothing to stop it from damaging your lungs. And so a microgram, a millionth of a gram, can cause, a, uh, um, can cause lung cancer. And that's exactly what Brookhaven was concerned about. When you burn nuclear fuel, you will create these little tiny particles of plutonium and, um, uh, and that can cause uh, you know, many, many lung cancers. I thought the example of a dollar bill broken up into a million pieces was an interesting analogy showing about how small plutonium has to be to be lethal. It's a powerful example. I teach at the, at the local community college, and one of the things I teach is grams. And, and a dollar bill is almost exactly a gram. It's, it's, a, it's a perfect, you know, if you need something to hold in your brain, um, the weight of a dollar bill and the weight of a gram are about the same. You talked about plutonium being in the trenches. Yes. And without breach of containment, and that there's a leakage of a seal scenario. Can you talk about that? Well, it's actually worse than that now. Um, since I wrote that, they've, uh, um, the, the problem has gotten worse. Um, I, I postulated a way for the uh, radioactive water to get out of the reactor. And let's, let, let's talk about a reactor is nothing but a pressure cooker. That's a, a okay. glorified pressure cooker. 
And it sits inside a box called the containment. And that sits inside another box called the secondary containment. So there's a, a pressure cooker inside a box inside a box. The things that blew up at Fukushima were the secondary containment. So if everything worked fine, there's still the reactor and there's still the first box or the primary containment. Well, on Unit 2 at least, the core has melted through the reactor. And um, so the pressure cooker has got a hole in the bottom of it. And on Unit 2, um, and this is the one that actually looks the best, by the way. It's the one that still has the blue box above it. Um, the, the containment has failed. There's a, there's a crack in part of the containment. So they're pouring water in the top to cool it. It's running out the hole in the bottom and getting collected in the containment, except the containment isn't containing. And so that will contain all the, the witch's brew of isotopes. That'll contain, you know, the cesiums and strontiums and radioactive iodine and, and plutonium, uh, because it's in direct contact with the fuel. The fuel is now a lump at the bottom of the containment. So it's in direct contact, the water's in direct contact with the fuel. Now that's running out. That's running into, uh, trenches, um, that weren't designed to hold it. Um, that may be cracked. I think they are because they weren't designed for the earthquake. And um, those those trenches are then leaking into the Pacific. So they are just now, uh, they announced yesterday that they were going to be looking at the sediment on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean to look for plutonium to see if it's there. What does it mean when you say 100 rem per hour in radioactive water and that the condensers are not seismic at Fukushima? Ah, well, let's go up a little bit. 300 rem, roughly, is, um, is a lethal dose in an hour. So between three and 400 rem, uh, if you were exposed to that for an hour, um, that would be very quickly a lethal dose. So 100 rem would mean that if you stood in that water for three or four hours, you would die. We're not talking about die... 30 years from now from a cancer, we're talking about like die in the next couple of, couple of weeks. Um, it causes um, neurological breakdown and, and, and it also uh, ruins your gastrointestinal tract. So um, at, at those levels, when you hear REM, not millirem, but REM, uh, especially hundreds of REM, you're talking about the likelihood of, um, of death very quickly. So the puddles those guys were walking in a couple of weeks ago were over, their instruments actually went off scale, they were over 100 rem an hour. Um, and so uh, several people were exposed to quite high levels of radiation at Fukushima. So the water is incredibly radioactive. Now they needed some place to put it. And so there's this big tank called the condenser underneath the turbine. And uh, the plan was that they would pump it to the condenser as a place to store it because they were running out of, uh, of, of tanks. And, uh, um, but that's not designed for an earthquake. And the question is, was it intact after the earthquake? And nobody knows. So they're pumping all this water into places that may or may not have, uh, have any structural integrity. The thing that I don't get is how can the condensers not be seismically fitted? I don't get that. Yeah. I don't understand it. A nuclear plant's got two parts. 
the, the safety-related stuff. That's the nuclear reactor, the nuclear containment, um, and, and that pipe. And that's built to nuclear standards. But the rest of the power plant is built as if it were a coal plant. You know, it's built to industrial standards. So that actually the place where the electricity is made, the turbine and the condenser, is not robust. Uh, at least it's not as, as robust as the, as the containment itself. So that, um, um, and actually that's the big building. If you look at the Fukushima pictures, there's this really long building along the ocean. And that's the turbine hall. And it is, uh, it's not designed to withstand uh, the big earthquakes or the big tsunamis or anything. It's the next building in, the, the buildings that are blown up, that are the ones that contain the, quote, safety systems. It's just wild. It really goes to show you that you're only going to be as good as your weakest link. Yeah. And this is pure evidence of that. Here in the States, we, um, that, that, that standard applies, too. And... Um, we have, you know, let's look at Vermont Yankee. They claim, uh, after, after the fact, they've gone back and reanalyzed their, uh, their condenser. And they said, well, in most earthquakes it won't leak, so, um, so that's, that's pretty good. Uh, but, but in fact, if you look at the, the, the likely earthquake by today's standards, uh, it wouldn't withstand it either. Why do you think it is that the nuclear regulatory agency in general around the world and why do the power plants get to choose what's safe? Why do they even have the dominion and the authority to say what's safe? Can't there be a different frame of reference imposed on all of them, including the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, where the public will say what's safe, not them? Um, I, I think... They would claim that the public does make that recommendation because Congress tells them what to do. But, in fact, what's happened is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is run by three commissioners, all of whom are appointed by Congress. Every year, one is appointed. So every five years, you lose your job or you get reappointed. And the industry, the nuclear industry, has been instrumental in appointing every commissioner for the last 20 years. Because, you know, they, they lobby Congress. So if um, when a commission slot opens up, um, you know, people like me or, or, or Dave Lockbaum at Union of Concerned Scientists uh, don't get considered because the industry doesn't want us to get that job. Um, it's only people that the industry uh, wants to get those jobs, gets the job of overseeing the industry. Um, and it's been known. It, it's, uh, it's not... Um, it's not a surprise. As a matter of fact, NEI, the Nuclear Energy Institute, the organization that promotes nuclear power, has openly bragged that it has vetted every commissioner since 1993. See, that's a conflict of interest that's too dire to be allowed to continue. Well, I would agree. It is the fox guarding the hen house, truly. Yes. Actually, it's the fox guarding the fox house, I should say. <laughs> Pete Domenici, who was um, a senator or representative uh, back in the 90s, wrote a book, and he openly brags in the book about pushing the Nuclear Regulatory Commission around, and they were taking too long to make approvals. And he threatened to cut their staff. He threatened to cut their funding. And they waffled. So uh, it, this isn't something behind the scenes that's happened. Uh, 
you know, influential senators have actually written books about how they pushed the Nuclear Regulatory Commission around. I want to talk a little bit about Arriva, the French nuclear company, and the report that came out. Would you like to talk about that? Uh, yeah, it was an, an interesting report. Arriva um, has, uh, they build pressurized water reactors and not boiling water reactors. And the, the Fukushima reactors are boiling water reactors. But they got a, uh, 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 by invitation only conference out at Stanford about a month, about a week and a half after the accident. And they, they really painted a pretty horrific picture of what the problems were uh, at Fukushima. Now, you and I weren't hearing that. We were hearing what the press was telling them, which was that, you know, things were pretty much under control. There might be some bumps in the road. But the Areva report, it's up on our website, by the way, the Areva report showed that, um, that things were quite dire. Uh, now, Areva has, um, has skin in the game. You know, they, they obviously want to build nuclear power plants in the future. And uh, they have the backing of the, of the French government. Um, but their, the report they were giving to people behind closed doors was dramatically uh, more concerning than what the, what the press was telling you and I. What people were there? Like, what kind of people were invited? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm sorry. Okay, no problem. How did you find out about the report, and how did it get to you? I found out about it by, from a, uh, someone who worked at the, for the United States Senate years ago and is retired. And uh, this, this person is just really well-connected and, uh, and sent me a, a copy of the report. Um, but it was you know, through back channels that we were able to get that report. And uh, since then, Ariva's even taken its name off the report. Uh, I happen to have a copy that was uh, um, you know, essentially the first edition, if you will. And, um, but the, uh, the later reports, they've kind of uh, tried to distance themselves um, uh, as a corporation. Can you share with us what the essence of the findings were? Um, well, I guess the biggest concerns were they were acknowledging, this is March 21st, 10 days after the accident, they were acknowledging massive fuel failures on Units 1, 2, and 3. Now, I was saying that on our blog because I had studied Three Mile Island, and I knew that when you don't put water into a nuclear reactor for 12 hours, you're going to have massive fuel failures. But the condition, the, the Japanese government and uh, uh, Tokyo Electric were telling everyone, well, they thought maybe 5% fuel damage. Um, and as a matter of fact, the, um, the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, was saying 5% fuel damage. So I was out there on our blog saying 70%, and here's IAEA, International Atomic Energy Agency, saying 5%. Now, since then, they've come to my 70, but um, initially they were trying to downplay the significance of the event along with all the other players. I think what the Areva report shows, though, is that the other players weren't dumb. They knew there was the damage I was talking about. They just didn't want to talk about it themselves. And what do you think about that relative to the Japanese people and what kind of effects there are going to be there? What is your take now on the situation? And if you were living in any other areas of Japan, would you be looking at migrating away? There's two questions there. What, what do I think about the report and how the officials 
handled it. Yes. I think they should have evacuated out to 30 or 40 kilometers, which is about 25 miles immediately. And I think they knew it, um, especially for pregnant women and children where the fetus is growing really fast and things like that. Um, and um, because they, they just didn't want people to go become sour on nuclear power and they had a lot of money invested in this facility, they weighed it and hemmed and hawed and, and basically hoped things were better than all the data suggested. So um, the, the authorities had all the information they needed within three days to order an evacuation out to 25 miles and should have. And even now they're not there. They're saying, well, take your time. In the next month you can pull out, but um, th there's no real rush. And, in fact, um, I, I think you're going to see uh, greater incidences, incidences of cancer as, as a result. Now, about where you live, uh, I get these questions on the, on the, on, in our emails, and it's tough. Um, I guess I would say um, that there's a that the if you haven't if you're not within that emergency zone, which I would put out to say 40 kilometers or or about 25 miles, um, you're probably okay unless. And and here's the two big unlesses. Um, my big concern is that the um, there'll be a, a another earthquake. Not as big as the nine that started it, but, but an aftershock. And some of these aftershocks can be huge. Correct. And the plants are already severely damaged. So my concern is that now you've got these plants that are already damaged that will get another aftershock and, um, and fail. So we'll have more containment failures and, and other releases of radiation. So if you don't get an earthquake, um, they'll probably hold together and um, probably over the next year or so, they'll get them under control. In the meantime, they'll be releasing radiation uh, all the time. Uh, they'll be venting radiation, and the containments are leaking, and there'll be leaks into the ocean. Um, but the big releases are probably behind us on the three plants that, um, that had meltdowns. So concern number one is, a, is an earthquake. Concern number two is, um, is that Unit 4 fuel pool. If it goes dry, and we wind up with that Brookhaven scenario that I was telling you about, where where you can volatilize plutonium, and um, and you know put hundreds of thousands of people at risk. So uh, now Tepco's got one of these that one of those gigantic trucks that they bought are, are over there pouring water into that contain into that fuel pool all the time. The problem is it's leaking. Uh, it's leaking at the bottom. There, there's a, some sort of a crack in it. Um, that was actually in the Arriva report. Arriva knew the pool was cracked from the earthquake, not from any explosions, but from the earthquake. So the pool, if left alone, will run dry and could, could cause a fuel pool fire, which would um, make the plutonium go airborne and could cause an enormous number of cancers. So those are my two big concerns for the future. If neither of those happen, staying where you are is just fine. Um, and um, and if either of them do, I don't know how far away you'd have to run. Ariva also was quoted as saying, we're witnessing one of the greatest accidents in modern times. Yes, that was an amazing quote. Um, they, they said it was, we're witnessing one of the greatest industrial accidents in modern time. Um, 
I think they said the greatest. Um, yes. Probably the other one could be Bhopal, and I don't think we should downplay Bhopal. That was the chemical plant by Union Carbide in, right. um, that killed tens of thousands of people from gases that were released. So I think this is right up there with, with Bhopal. From a cost standpoint, this is the biggest. Um, we're looking at probably, well, the plants were worth on the order of ten or twenty billion, and now they're worth less. And then on top of that, it'll cost thirty or forty billion to uh, dismantle the plants. So there's a fifty, sixty billion dollars right there, and that doesn't include cleaning up the local communities, um, so that um, um, this can easily go into hundreds of billions of dollars of cleanup. Who insures the nuclear companies? Who insures TEPCO? Is there an insurance carrier for these type of plants? No, there's not. Uh, TEPCO probably could self-insure to the tune of maybe $10 billion. In other words, they could you know, dip into all their assets and refinance or whatever and come up with $10 billion. But we're already talking $100 billion. And the, um, you cannot get insurance on a nuclear plant. Um, the, the, the insurance industry doesn't refuses to write insurance on a nuclear plant. So here in the States, we have this thing called Price-Anderson, which is a, it's a sort of an insurance policy. But basically what it means is that after about $10 billion, that the, all of the nuclear plants pool their money. So that 100 plants pool about $100 million each. And uh, the first $10 billion is paid for by the industry. Anything after that, you and I pay for it comes out of taxes. Of course, and that's why they don't have to make sure that every aspect of the plants are safe. That's why they can get away with what they get away with, because there's nothing holding them accountable. Nothing, really. You're right. Without that insurance policy, this industry would shut down. And if you look at the uh, Gulf oil spill, I mean, here's, here's British Petroleum. Um, the, those costs were over $20 billion, and British Petroleum paid for it out of their own coffers. In the nuclear industry, it's not like that. In the nuclear industry, if there's an accident, taxpayers pay. If taxpayers pay, then we should be actually the ones who have the final say about what's safe, not them. I couldn't agree more with you. If taxpayers pay, we should control who's on the commission and, and how the commission, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, does its business. But in fact, it's been captured. Uh, there's, a, there's a term actually called regulatory capture. Um, and um, initially, they start out with great intent, and then over time, the industry that they were supposed to be regulating captures them. And uh, the NRC has been captured by the nuclear regulator, by, by the people it's supposed to be regulating. You originally got into the nuclear industry, obviously with good intentions, and you had to have something that led you into the industry. You were a licensed reactor operator. What attracted you to doing that? Um, the math is beautiful, the, the, and I was really good at math. And, and it, <laughs> it, if you play the numbers, it works great. But you have to realize that people are running these plants, and, and you know if you take the people out of the equation – the, the math is truly beautiful, how, the, how these atoms split and all that kind of stuff. But I, I, I have developed in a, a saying that I didn't have when I started. Um, say, it says, uh, sooner or later, in any foolproof system, 
the fools are going to exceed the proofs. I like that. Well, thank you. That's and that's the problem. It's it's uh, you know you can make the numbers work, but as soon as you put people in the equation, um, people are fallible and people make assumptions. You know, like Fukushima, um, they assumed a, uh, about a twenty-five foot wave, and that was a pretty big wave. And uh, this wave that hit them was forty-five feet, so that uh, it, it it made a mockery of their assumptions. Um, you know, I've looked at three big accidents in nuclear now, and, and Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and now Fukushima. And all of them had uh, occurred for reasons that nobody anticipated. And so that tells me that it's not about uh, analysis is not going to make this problem any better because you can only animal, analyze things that you anticipate. And yet, all of the things that have hit us in the nuclear industry have not been anticipated. Um, I think that that really speaks to um, you know Donald Rumsfeld and his unknown unknowns. And uh, there are too many unknown unknowns here um, that can easily uh, screw up the calculations and, and, and cause an a- another accident. But don't you think also that... Uh, aside from the unknown unknowns, that there are certain knowns, the assumptions were very low in terms of the criteria, you know, not having containment that was seismically fit. There are some things that you don't have to be at the highest echelon of nuclear knowledge to know are not set up appropriate for the kind of potential dangers that these plants have. And You're absolutely right. There's unknown unknowns, which is kind of like an X-factor scenario, but there's maybe not a 10-foot wave or a 20-foot wave, but there's a 100-foot wave. So the bottom line is that you go way higher, 10 times higher than you think. That would seem to be real prudence in operating these plants, to me. There are people outside of the agency, you know, whether it's here in the States, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and the people it's regulating – they work inside a box. And then there's people like Dave Lockbaum at Union Concerned Scientists and I who ask just those kinds of questions. You know, you're not looking at the real problem. And in Japan, there were scientists who, um, uh, who said, you know, this 25-foot this wave that you've analyzed for is way too small. And the regulators and TEPCO, the, the Tokyo Electric, said you're wrong. And they had the power. So the, the wisdom was on the, the, the one side of the equation, but the power and the money was on the other side of the equation. We see that here in the States, too. I, I've been arguing with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission since 2005. On uh, um, it's, it's not obscure. It has to do with containment failures. And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has, has written there is a zero probability of a containment failure. Well, that's crazy. That's just pathology. Well, yes, that's the assumption um, that I am going up against. And uh, you, if there, there will never be an accident if there's a zero probability. And what I've been saying is there is a finite probability that a containment can fail. And now, of course, Fukushima, all three of those containments are leaking. So that um, I have been proven right by events, but yet the Nuclear Regulatory Commission still hasn't changed its assumptions. On Russia Today, when you were interviewed, you said that you had felt that TEPCO was three weeks too late, that the Japanese are committed to nuclear and they wanted to downplay what was happening. And the standard practice was to look for the best alternative versus the realistic one. Do you remember saying that? 
Yes. Talk yes. about that. That was very insightful. Talk about that. Well, let's look at this um, this earthquake. Um, I'm sorry, the the the, the uh, tsunami wall. They could have built a, a 15 meter wall, um, but it would have cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And um, they, in their calculus, not in my calculus, but in their calculus, the hundreds of millions of dollars come out of profits. And the risk, as they see it, is incredibly low. Um, and so if you. It's just really that, gambling. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. And, and those gambles are here in the United States as well. It's not like uh, the, the, the Americans are perfect and the Japanese. Right. No, I totally understand. So let's go back to the tsunami wall. And it, uh, it could have been uh, 20, you know, 15, 15 meters is 45 feet high. Um, and that's what the, what the um, renegade scientists in Japan thought it should be. Um, but in order to do that, it would have cost money. It would have taken time. And um, uh, neither of which did the, the captured regulator and the person who had to spend the money feel that um, that should should be spent. And they use this thing called PRA, probabilistic risk assessment. And it's a numbers game. And uh, if you downplay the risk and you increase the cost, you can always justify not making a safety improvement. And, and that's what happens in the U.S. industry, you know, that you can essentially cook the books. You can push the numbers so the risk is uh, incredibly low. And you can also adjust the numbers so the cost is incredibly high. And you say, well, for this risk, I can't, this cost doesn't make sense. And, and the, at the NRC, that is the way decisions are made. They compare our risk versus the nuclear industry's cost. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's I was down there um, in, uh, in the summer um, arguing about containment integrity in front of the Advisory Committee on Reactor Safeguards. And uh, that was exactly the point on the table, was, uh, was containment integrity. And um, uh, I had pictures of containments that failed here in the U.S., um, there's been, oh, I guess maybe 10 in the last 40 years where there's been holes or cracks in containment. And still, the Advisory Committee on Reactor Safeguards was saying there's zero probability of a failure. Now, and the reason they wanted that was because they were very close to licensing a brand-new reactor, which was called the AP-1000. And it's still being licensed. They have not slowed the licensing process down on the AP-1000, which is a next-generation reactor. And they are so thoroughly committed to having it succeed that they were, they were willing to ignore photographs and say, well, those photographs don't apply. The probability is zero. It's a total disconnect. It's also sociopathic consciousness to me for this to happen. I think that's why, why I try to stick to the facts. Because if I if I get into the the, the fact the, the 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 reality of it that this is absolutely illogical, um, it uh, um... actually in this way I do disagree with you. I think it's totally logical. The people that are acting this way and asserting that there's zero risk, okay, have a disconnect with awareness. I don't think that this is an accident. This is the manifestation of a way of thinking and functioning. And 
basically why I appreciate you explaining it is that many of us feel so outside of what's going on with the nuclear industry, with nuclear power plants, with how they work, what's happening, what's being leaked, where the dangers are. It's very difficult to be on the outside listening to obviously filtered news and information, not only on radio and television, but you really still have to also look and listen carefully when you're listening to the web, which, you know, at least you have an opportunity to really share what you know and to share your experience and to bring us into what's happening. But it's hard. And we feel many of us feel very powerless as to what to do. Can we talk a little bit about what radiation has spread to America and what your perspective is about it and what are our dangers right now? I mean, I know that you're not trying to scare everybody, but I think we have to be vigilant because we know we're getting filtered information and the powers that be are not being upfront with us, including our EPA, by the way, who I've been unhappy with for a year and a half for other things, but now I'm really unhappy with the EPA and the FDA. So what's your take on it, Arnie? Well, there's two, two thoughts. Um, first off, uh, I'd like to talk just for a second about this issue of what I call the, the, the nuclear priesthood. And, <laughs> okay. And, that, and that's a term coined by a, by a guy named Barry Commoner back in the 70s, I think. So I, I don't take credit for it. But it's, it's really an orthodoxy with its own vocabulary that I think is designed to exclude the public from the process. There's so many words and concepts that are, are difficult to understand that sort of only the priests could read that Bible, and we need to trust them. And by the way, it's the same in finance. Right. <laughs> and, and so I think that um, you know, when you have a public hearing and you talk to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, they sit there and they tolerate you, but you really you only have two minutes. And then they go home and, and, and go back to business as usual. Literally, they'll keep a, a stop clock on, on every person who speaks. And uh, I, I have come forward with major concerns, and, and they've given me two minutes. Um, and, and so it's, um, it's not a level playing field. It, it's, uh, it's clearly them up on the altar and, and us down in the pews. Uh, but your second question, the, the question about what's the effect on the, on the United States um, uh, scientists, including me, are, are working on that. Uh, I don't trust the EPA numbers. I don't trust the NRC numbers. Um, and But uh, this time, I think it's going to be different. I think when Chernobyl occurred 25 years ago, there wasn't the Internet. And when TMI occurred 30 years ago, there wasn't the Internet. Uh, now scientists are sharing information, and uh, we're getting a better idea of what kind of radiation is being received. So we've got, um, we have, um, uh, so these samples are being taken all over the country and are gradually coming in to get us some data. I think, for, from my way of thinking, um, I said it on the website uh, yesterday, we need to be monitoring fish in the Pacific. Um, I don't think the issue is now, unless you're near Japan, but over the next several months, the radiation is going to spread, and the bigger fish that eat the little fish are going to migrate. So I think we need to be uh, monitoring our fish. Clearly in Japan, I would not eat fish. I would wash my leafy vegetables. I would damp, damp dust my, uh, my apartment, not dry dust it because you don't want the dust to, to get kicked up again, things like that. Uh, here in the States, I think uh, 
um, it would be prudent on the West Coast to, to stay away from milk for 90 days. And the reason only 90 days is because the iodine will decay away and, and uh, it'll be fine. The same with cheese. And cheese is a 90-day shelf life, so it, it won't have any iodine in it by the time it gets here. What about cesium-137 and plutonium? Those numbers are still out, and I probably will be talking about them on the website in the next week or two. Um, but they have detected some plutonium in Japan, and I'd expect you'd see it here. The, the problem is that the, what happens is, um, let's look at that 300 millirem, we, 300 rem we talked about. But wait, right. That, that definitely causes cancer. So 30 rem to 10 people will cause one cancer. In other words, one-tenth of the dose to 10 times the people will cause a cancer. So 3 rem to 100 people will cause cancer, and, and, and so on down. Um, so that radiation being emitted and getting dispersed doesn't mean that there aren't going to be cancers. Um, it means that they're harder to identify that that cancer came from Fukushima or that cancer came from, uh, you know, smoking a cigarette. But that there will be additional cancers is is is, is going to happen. It's not like it, it's uh, it's hypothetical. But the problem is that when the when the exposures get dispersed, it's really hard for an individual to do something about it. Um, you know. Um, Washing leafy vegetables, if you're near the source, helps a lot. Washing leafy vegetables in Vermont, when there might not be anything on it to begin with, probably probably doesn't. So the risk is shifted off of individuals when you get as far away as the East Coast, at least, and um, um, and and becomes a collective risk. There will be people on the East Coast that get cancers from this, but... Did they get it from the leafy vegetable or whatever? We won't be able to find out because the radiation wave is dispersed. Now, to answer your question about cesium and plutonium, uh, I need another week. I have one other question about, for example, recently in the rainwater in Boise, Idaho, the radiation is like 3,000 times more than any EPA acceptable amount. I've seen those numbers, and that does not surprise me. So a lot of people are scared, Arnie, about drinking water and what to do. Do you have any suggestions? I know some of this you can't answer till next week, but is there any suggestions in terms of drinking water that we can do? And where are you at about taking iodine at this time? I bought the pills, and I'm not taking them. Um, but see, here in Vermont, our cows are still on silage. We have snow in the fields. Uh, and uh, and so if your cows are not on silage, uh, that's a that's a different issue. Um, my advice is uh, uh, if you're if you're uh, you know getting milk from a West Coast cow to avoid it for uh, for ninety days. You know, buy Vermont milk. That would be good for Vermont, I guess. But uh, and uh, you know as far as the rain out, and that's what that term is called. Um, yeah, we are seeing significant areas where there's rain out in astronomical numbers, you know, a couple thousand times EPA limits. Um, you know, and then 100 miles away, you'll find rain that doesn't have it. Uh, I don't count on, uh, I, in that situation, if you know you've got rain out in those numbers, um, I, would, um, uh, I would go with, like, Brita filters. Um, that would take out the, uh, the, the cesium. Um, and, and, and things like that. You can't avoid water entirely, but, um, 
certainly as far as... Uh, How about reverse osmosis? That would work, too. Yeah. An RO filter or a Brita filter would work just fine. Um, um, but I'm... Uh, but you, the problem is you really don't know how much is in the rain while it's raining, and, and uh, um, you have to rely on the local university that, uh, that happens, to be, uh, happens to be measuring it. Um, it's really a tough call. Um, I, I guess with the exception of on the West Coast, I would, I would certainly wash my leafy vegetables, stay away from milk, and, and I would wet dust. I wouldn't dry dust. I would wet dust. Because some of these particles come over as dust, and if you just dust with a cloth, you're going to send them back up again. Um, so, so wet dusting, I, I think those are probably the, the three recommendations that I would do if I was on the West Coast. On the East Coast, I'm staying away from milk uh, anyway uh, for 90 days. And, uh, and, and I'm wet dusting here, but um, maybe that might be a little bit over the top. So you're staying away from milk even though your cows are inside? Yes. Because I'm not sure I'm getting Vermont milk. You know, if I was getting, if I knew the, I was getting Vermont milk, I wouldn't worry about it. But, uh, um, um, you know, when you buy from the large dairies, uh, that, that milk gets blended or, or it comes from California or who knows where. So, um, the, the problem is you don't know your source of milk. That's a good point. And lastly, could you share with us before we close today, what is a Becquerel? And Omega Becquerel, and what does that have to do with Fukushima? Um, the Becquerel is named after a guy named Henri Becquerel, uh, and he was an important scientist, so they named a unit after him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when you get really important, they'll name something after you. Um, so anyway, uh, a Becquerel is nothing but one disintegration per second. So rather than say disintegration per second, they say a Becquerel. And I, I don't think it's any easier term to remember, but it's just part of the, the priesthood. You know, the, it's a term uh, that uh, you need to know to, to, uh, to be part of the priesthood. Now, a mega becquerel, and that kind of rolls off your tongue. I like how that sounds. A mega becquerel is a million disintegrations per second. Mega is million, becquerel is disintegrations per second. So when you hear a mega becquerel, that's one million disintegrations per second. What that means is that the, the radioactive decays are occurring a million times a second. And they continue. You know, once they've decayed for that second, there's another second with another million behind it and another million behind that. Um, so it's a constant field of radiation that's decaying at a million disintegrations every second. I think it was in your April 18th release that TEPCO had said that something different happened, that iodine fell from the sky. Yes. Talk about that. I really want to close with this because it's very pivotal. What they'll, if you, if you imagine um, a meter by a meter, which is roughly three feet by three feet, make a box three feet by three feet, and then um, let, let's say the box is on glass, and then you take a, a, a piece of um, uh, cotton and you totally clean the glass and you put that piece of cotton in a radiation detector. And it, if that cotton disintegrates, if you hear, feel or see the disintegrations from that piece of cotton at a, a million disintegrations on that little piece of cotton, and you took it off of a square meter, that would be the deposition, the amount of radiation on that piece of glass that was a foot to three feet by three feet, would be a mega becquerel. 
So it tells you how much radioactive dust has fallen on a square meter or a square yard of, um, of material. Okay, so explain the part about what TEPCO said. Ah, yeah. Because I felt this was very important for the public to hear. The, the fuel pool in Unit 4 has iodine in it. And uh, iodine only comes from nuclear fission. But the fuel pool for Unit 4 has been shut down now for five months. So the iodine could not have come from the chain reaction uh, from five months ago because with an eight-day half-life, there would be none left. But it's there. So I suggested that it could be from a chain reaction that occurred after the accident. And I built fuel racks, and I understand that that can happen. And I think TEPCO, anticipating that, said, no, it fell from the sky. It fell from deposition from the other units. They threw up this iodine, and it fell back down onto the fuel pool. Well, the calculations I did shows that in order to get that amount of iodine into that fuel pool, you'd need a release larger than Chernobyl. So they, they have their choice. They can either say, okay, we released more than Chernobyl, which they don't really want to do, or they can admit that the fuel pool had a self-sustaining nuclear reaction in it, which they don't want to do. But it's one of those two alternatives, and, and that's really what I was discussing on the, on the video on the website. That's powerful, and you talked about 2,000 disintegrations per second, that they're crazy. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, that, that was in a little tiny piece. About yeah, I know. Smaller than the tip of your finger, but when you ex- expand that to the whole fuel pool, you realize that in order to get that amount of radiation into the whole fuel pool, you have to have a release the size of Chernobyl. And TEPCO said that that's how it fell. It fell from the sky into the water. But then the reporters in the mainstream media didn't ask the next question, well, how much would have to fall from the sky in order for that to happen? And, and I did the calculations and I presented it. So that's, that's how I got there. Pretty powerful. Do we need Geiger counters and would it even help us to have them? I don't think so. Uh, I would rely on my local universities and try to get them to publish stuff. Um, you know, there's, there's radiation labs and all these, and if, if they would publish once a day, um, you know, as a community service, I think that would, be, uh, that would be great. I really thank you for your time and your sharing with us. I'm so honored to have you on, Arnie. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to Arnie Gunderson. You can reach him and learn more about what's going on at Fairwinds Associates. Please give your website address, Arnie. It's uh, fairwinds.com, and Fairwinds is the old English way. It's got an E in the middle, F-A-I-R-E-W-I-N-D-S.com. Thank you so much for being on, and I look forward to speaking with you again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.